1: Oh, welcome back to the Spiro Avenue show. And I always say it's primarily a sports show, but not always. Occasionally, we dive deep into the abyss of this world or that world. And we're going to get to that in a minute. I'm excited. This is going to be a great one. It's going to be a fascinating one. We've talked about the mafia. We've talked about some elements of crime, but never like this. We're going to go deep dive into the criminal mind and the psychology of some of society's biggest dregs. But we're not ready yet because we have to remember who keeps our lights on. I always say, it's not me. I don't pay our bills. Ben certainly doesn't pay our bills. It is the sponsors, and we have one of the best ones ever, one of the early onboard friends of the show, Virgil's Vineyard, makers of The Smuggler's Son. They were my favorite wine way before this show was even a thing. This isn't the fake thing where I'm supposed to say that or I'm paid to say that. I am paid by them, but I would say that anyway. It's fantastic. Check them out, virgilsvineyard.com. This wine tastes like it's $250. It ain't that, and it's even less than what it is when you use discount code SPIRO, S-P-I-R-O, at checkout for uh, for that uh, 10% off at the discount code checkout. Enter it, be happy, thank me later. You'll love it, I promise. Again, that's virgilsvineyard.com. Thank you to Matthew and Jennifer Kipper. And they do keep the lights on. We love them for it. And the reason we love people that sponsor our show is because I get to talk to fascinating people and it's not completely on my dime. We're going to get to that in a second, but I want to talk a little bit about just sort of my general long-held fascination with criminal behavior. And I think I'm not alone in this. I think I'm typical in this way. And it's particularly with criminal psychology. Some people get really into the forensics, the CSI. Not that I'm not interested in that at all, but the psychology really pushes it for me. That's what what piques my interest. And I, I wonder openly when I watch anything or read any books on this kind of stuff, why do the worst criminals do what they do? And you can look back, I mean, there's myriad examples. You look back at Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy of more recent vintage, uh, Chris Watts. We always wonder, or at least I do, was there something we missed? I mean, that's what we do. We look into their childhood. We look into the friends or their neighbor. What did you see? What did, you, did you notice anything that was off? How can we spot the next Ted Bundy, Chris Watts, whomever? What were the signs, if any? And could this have been stopped? Because we're humans, we like to control stuff, right? And what you find out really, with very few exceptions, is there are no easy answers. And it's really a difficult field to study, this criminal psychology. Very complex. There's no blood test like there is for hepatitis C. There's no obvious physical symptoms like someone with leprosy, some other type of illness where there's visible scarring or wounds on the body. So, psychology is is tough. It's tough to pin down. And you can even have licensed, well educated, extremely intelligent people look at the same set of facts and all the same evidence and come to completely different conclusions. So, it's murky. But I think the thing that most people can agree on most people I know agree that the psychology of criminals is interesting. To me, it's fascinating. And I think the evidence of that is the 500 Netflix documentaries that have spoken to this audience. Hulu, the same thing. People eat it up. And I mean, the same thing you could say with the published word, there's a reason there's been over a hundred books, literally published on Charles Manson and the, the Sharon Tate murder. We're into this stuff. I mean, it's, it's macabre, but we're into this stuff. And uh, you know where we do disagree though, we can all agree it's interesting, where we disagree, where there's sort of a departure is what to do after these crimes are committed and the bad guy, quote-unquote, is behind bars. We're all interested. We all watch the documentaries. We have different perspectives generally on what to do with these bad people, quote-unquote, after the fact. Should we even give two hoots in hell about the mental health of an inmate? Should we care? And what value selfishly is conferred to us when these criminals, many of them savage, many of their crimes savage, Are given access to mental health treatment available to them, but not many law abiding citizens? These are fair questions. And we do see a a difference there, a fork in the road where people go one way or the other. And this reminds me if you think I'm going to not take a 90s pop culture reference opportunity whenever I can, you're crazy. This is your first rodeo with this show. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies. If you're an alive human being, probably yours too, The Shawshank Redemption. This, this famous scene, there's so many. I mean, the whole movie, it's a collection of famous scenes, right? But this famous scene where poor Andy, wrongfully convicted of killing his wife and her lover, is in there and he just, he just wants a tiny little library for him and his inmates. He just wants a little hole in the wall, 35-year-old used books that are falling apart. He just wants a little bit of money to get there. And he's appealing to the warden saying, Warden, come on, I- I'm laundering all this money for you. Can, can you just help me get like a hundred bucks to buy some you know, old rags to put on a shelf somewhere? And the warden kind of rolls his eyes. So we'll, we'll play a little bit of that clip just to paint the picture. My budget stretched thin as it is. I see. Perhaps I could write the state Senate and request funds directly from them. As far as i are concerned, only three ways to spend the taxpayers hard earned when it comes to prisons. More walls, more bars, more guards. Still, I'd, I'd like to try with your permission. I'll write a letter a week. They can't ignore me forever. Sure can you write your letters, if it makes you happy. I'll even mail them for you. How's that? Hi, that warden's a swell guy. Now look, no one's fooling anybody here. This is fiction. We know it's fiction. But it's good fiction. It's realistic fiction. I think it's a representative example of how a lot of people feel. I want more guards, bigger walls, more guns. Lock them up. Keep them there. Keep them out of my neighborhood. So uh, if you're going to put more money towards anything, it has to go to those things. It's not going to be a library, even if it's $10. There's no allocation in people's spirits and their minds of money for these people to benefit them in any way. So I wanted to centralize this and localize this to Michigan, because that's where we are. And it's a universal issue, certainly a national issue, but let's keep it to Michigan. How lacking is the mental health treatment in particular in Michigan's prisons? So let's take a look at that. We put together this graphic, um, <laughs> quite startling. This is a, a real example here in Michigan. Man by the name of Justin Lee Dawson, 28 years old at the time, he was accused of improperly touching a female relative. He has the IQ literally of a six-year-old. Was evaluated by numerous mental health professionals, and they said this guy is literally—it's it's like just beyond a toddler level IQ. He waited in jail for over a year before receiving any psychiatric help whatsoever, any analysis, any general intake, nothing. The guy sat in jail for a year. Now, I'm not advocating for 28-year-olds being allowed to improperly touch a female relative, but I think we might want to get the guy with an IQ of a six-year-old assessed a little bit earlier than a year, even if you hate the guy just for the sake of protecting everybody else. How crazy is this guy? Maybe he's a malevolent being, sat there for a year. Let's move on to sort of a picture of the psych bed picture from the 1950s to today. 1950s, there were 20,000 plus state psychiatric beds. We had a population of 7.8 million. So population of 7.8 million, over 20,000 state psych beds. Today, as of 2020, a population of 10 million, 2.2 million more than the 50s, there's 794 State psych bed. Big uptick in population, dramatic 90 plus percent decrease in availability of psychiatric beds available to people that need it. So it's an ugly picture. And it's clear if the goal is to combat this, we lack the resources, or we certainly lack the proper allocation of resources that we have available. We sit here with a glaring lack of soldiers in a fight. That's pretty clear at this point. But is it a fight we even want? Is it a fight that we should be taking on? Is it a fight that we even care to absorb and to adopt? These questions are fascinating to me. I do have some feelings on them, but I do see both sides. But I want to have someone a lot smarter than me, and that's a long list, but this person's quite a bit smarter, sort of fill in some of this. So I want to, I want to introduce her right now, good friend of mine, a true Spartan dog. That's the good thing about attending Michigan State is you just you have access to the most brilliant, wonderful people if you go to Michigan State University. So we bring in one of the critical few soldiers in this underman fight. She is a clinical psychologist. She works with inmates from tax evading pencil pushers that are probably not going to hurt you, although I wouldn't trust them with my money, to the very worst society has to offer. This is a person who is, entire job, livelihood, is treating people like this in large part. I, I find this stuff fascinating I, like I said, I love bringing in people smarter than me. This one certainly qualifies. Becca Polanski, good friend of mine. Good to see you again. Welcome to the Spiro Avenue Show.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
1: I'm thrilled to have you. It's been a while since I've seen you. It's been a bit. And and you have gone kind of... A, your life was interesting. It got a lot more interesting since I saw you <laughs> last. So I've yeah. seen kind of the stuff you're doing and posting and talking about. I knew I wanted to have you in at some point. Mm-hmm. This is big for me. I love this stuff. But tell me a little bit about... like why do you do what you do? Like just what, what sort of driving you, why is it important to you?
0: So uh, I guess I always wanted to do psychology. That's what my major was at Michigan state. And I knew I wanted to pursue that more, but just I wasn't sure what aspect and what area, Um, you know, I wanted to go into psychopharmacology for a while, work with people who, Also had very severe psychotic disorders, but ultimately, I don't know if you've spoken about Andrew on your show yet, a very good friend of ours, um, when he was murdered, uh, that in a roundabout way, kind of an odd way, I guess, prompted my interest in in criminal psychology and in forensic psychology. Kind of like you said, you know, why do people do the things that they do, especially if it's not someone who's like a serial killer, like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer, um, more of Crimes of passion, as a lot of people would say.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm fascinated kind of by both. I'm fascinated by the total psychos that, by the way, my jargon is going to be way off. Like, like, I know, like, sociopath people use uh, it improperly. Like, I mean, if someone, like, cuts you off on the freeway, you call them a sociopath. <laughs> so feel free to jump in and be like, hey, hey, ignoramus, you know, figure it out. You're, you're misleading your audience here. So just, I, I'm curious, um, this, this, you could do, like, five hours on this one question alone. But just sort of a cursory picture. Mm-hmm you, in part, I know you work in a practice and you kind of, you treat, right. And mm-hmm. not just prisoners exclusively. Correct. Right. So we'll leave that sort of to the side for now. Mm-hmm. Why do you think prisoners generally deserve treatment? Why? I mean, cause I'm just thinking it's the audience, the people that are like, Hey, screw that guy. He killed his wife or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, why do you think you're filling a role that needs to be filled, should be filled?
0: I think a lot of the kind of uh, precursors or factors that go into um, why people do what they do criminally or just in general, as um, we kind of spoke about this before, but um, you can have a genetic predisposition to a disorder, but based on your life circumstances, you may never develop symptoms. And I think when people have particularly, especially horrible life experiences, that that has a, a big to do with their behavior later on in life and working with inmates and criminals i've heard the saddest stories i've ever heard from people about you know horrific abuse and sex trafficking and just terrible terrible things that they experience in life and it kind of makes you wonder even if you did have this genetic predisposition is this what your path would have been if you didn't experience all of these horrible things almost to the extent that sometimes it's, that's your normal people. A lot of the times you hear that people who are abusive to their family members, um, their significant others, they were abused as children too. It kind of becomes that norm. That's what you expect. And that's, that's what's just, that's your life. That's, it's not unusual for you to kind of feel like, Oh, well, this is just how life works.
1: Yeah. So what you're talking a little bit about is, epigenetics generally and i mean that's a again a big blanket term people talk about epigenetics in terms of diet but basically my layman explanation Mm -hmm. of epigenetics is sort of that nature versus nurture debate it's both right i mean Mm -hmm. that's it's the idea with epigenetics is like yes you may have that predisposition to you know like oranges to Abuse your spouse or whatever. I mean, it could be anything. You may have that sort of proclivity to do that genetically, but your nurture, your environment either flips those switches on Mm -hmm. or leaves them off. So, right. Yeah. And is that a fair, like, kind of, you know, me being a totally unrelated (laughs) field, like advanced degrees and something that have nothing to do with this? So (laughs) that's fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think, you know, as far as a, a mental health professional, what have you. Um, You know, we don't get to see patients before they end up in jail, before they end up in prison, anything like that, because I would say most of the time you don't get these very affluent people that come into jail with these crimes that they've committed. Uh, They don't have the access or the knowledge or the resources to mental health treatment, Um, which is why I think even though it's it's after the fact, it's still important because maybe it's not going to happen often but maybe you might be able to help one out of 500 people that you encounter when you work that, every day
1: so it's that it's that whoa um, one in 500
0: i mean we see you see more people than that when you work in the in the criminal justice system but unfortunately the nature of mental health in um in prisons and in jails is that it's not uh it's not weekly therapy um, because there's just not enough resources for it to be that way. Um, so, unfortunately, when you do see those people, it's kind of kind of working retroactively. Um, yeah. But, oh, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. no, you're fine. But you always hope that at least something about what you say or your interaction is going to hopefully change them. Even if it's someone who didn't commit some heinous crime, if it was a, a drug-related crime or something like that. There's always that hope, and whether it ends up being true or not, that something that you said, the interactions that you had with them, you know, every other week, once a month, what have you, is gonna lead them in a different direction. Hopefully, when they get out, at least
1: like plant some seeds that might grow into something. I mean, it's 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 interesting because the mental health, just generally, I mean, what pick your disorder, you know, depression, whatever you want, Mm -hmm. it's so hard to get a hold of for a lot of people even if you're in free society with abundant resources, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's celebrities deal with it more than I think even Mm non-celebrities. They can have a therapist seven days a week and some of them do. And it's like, they're still battling it. So I guess that does in context, the one in 500, I mean, it's (laughs) Sam, I mean, it does make more sense. I think it's not so polarizing an issue for most people, at least that I know if it's, you know, a tax cheat or, Uh, you know, a serial vandal, like someone that's knocking over mailboxes and gets 90 days or something. Maybe you sit down and like, hey, what are you trying to do in life with you know somebody like you? Where it gets a little more polarizing, maybe a lot more polarizing, is someone that is uh, severe violent crime and in prison for life with no possibility mm-hmm. for parole. So even if someone did something really heinous and, and horrible, but we think they're getting out in 10 years or 15 years. I could argue society has a vested interest in their mental health, because if they're matriculating back into society, we don't want a total grenade being thrown into the population. And I'm with that, I agree, I'm like 100%. -hmm. Where I have a little reticence is, and I think most people are meaner than I am that are on this side. Someone, again, the key's like thrown away. No possibility for parole. They killed 15 people. They don't, they're not even going to be before a parole board, short of a presidential pardon or a governor's pardon, depending on the crime, they're not going anywhere. Why does that person warrant mental health treatment, particularly with resources as scarce as there? Do you have any take on that?
0: Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I, think that, I think that there's a psychological aspect to just about every person who Commits a crime. I mean, you know, we're all on some spectrum of that level. I think one of the most interesting things that uh, that a sergeant said to me when I was training, when I was working in Indianapolis, was he asked everyone in the room. He said, "Raise your hand if you've ever done something that could land you in jail or prison." So slowly, everyone's like,
1: <laughs> "Yeah, I'll, be, I'll no comment on that."
0: And uh, he's like, "Well, the difference between you and and those people that are you're going to be working with." Is that you didn't get caught. Um, so I think everyone, whether it's obviously a huge spectrum, you know, serial killers or people who, you know, like you said, running over mailboxes or some tax evasion, something like that, I think they all deserve mental health treatment. And particularly ones that are less understood, like people who are serial killers who seem to have no empathy, no remorse. You know, you meet with them and they have no feelings. They just very, casually talk about what they did. Um and it's a it's a very odd interaction. It's something that that I had never expected to encounter. Just talking to someone very nonchalant, like you would ask someone about their day if you ran into them, you know, at the grocery store. That's kind of how it comes across. But clearly that's that's a result of something. Um and I don't think that we have the opportunity or the resources to Understand what?
1: Yeah, definitely not. I think we have a poor understanding. And I mean, even with abundant, endless resources, it's such, you know, it's too complex. You're not in somebody's brain. Like we said, there's no test. Like I can't get a blood test to say I'm, you know, uh, schizophrenic or whatever. Uh, so you do have to deal with sort of differential diagnosis and, you know, do the best you can. And I mean, I assume you work from DSM-5, right? Is yeah. That, we're not up to six yet.
0: Not up to six. Not up no. to six yet. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I, I'm friendly with a guy named David Cullen, a journalist, author. He wrote a book on Columbine. I really, mm-hmm. I would say probably the book on Columbine. It's literally called Columbine. It's a tome. There's a big, deep dive into the whole thing. And he describes sort of the worst of what you're talking about, so, you know, criminal sociopaths, serial killers like the way you see a kid on the street killing ants, like, you know, a four-year-old that doesn't know any better is like mm-hmm. stopping ants. That's like humans to them. It's like, it's not even, it doesn't mm-hmm. even register. There's no distinction. He also talks about like in a video game, if you're playing Golden Eye as a kid, that's how old I am. But, you know, you're shooting up the <laughs> cartoons that are running around in 6,000 pixels. Mm-hmm. Like the, there's no, there's no distinction. I mean, it's, there's, there's none. I mean, is that kind of a, by buy Cullen's take on that. It's There's no like kind of register at the top end of the totem pole for people like that. It's just, it's like, we're nothing to them.
0: Uh, I think it kind of depends on the case. I mean, I've, I've seen, I don't know that I've necessarily seen random or met with met with criminals who have randomly killed people, um, such as like, you know, like we already talked about Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy. Those are, those are random, seemingly random killings you know i don't know how many documentaries you watch about ted bundy but he would just kind of go out and just do his thing with you know no particular target no particular person no you know background as to why he was doing this and same with like same with jeffrey dahmer um so as far as i guess people who like commit crimes like like you said in columbine i know there's like a whole history or of like the the bullying aspect and that's how these people you know just become very angry and like you said there's no difference between them playing a video game and them killing people in real life um i've never experienced that all of the individuals i've encountered have it's either you know some personal aspect someone they knew something has to do with drugs or gangs um things like that so i can't at least speak too much to that um but it is still that lack of like that lack of remorse like it's going out and it's i don't know, it's buying a cup of coffee and not thinking twice about it
1: do you ever feel frustrated going into the you know worst of the worst uh, people that you deal with is there a sense of hopelessness like man I, i'm gonna try my best but you said one in 500 chance like even on a good right. day even if i'm the best in the world at my job mm-hmm. it's like it's out of my control do you ever get a sense of like the fuck like yeah give it the old college try but right like, um, yeah
0: absolutely um unfortunately the nature of a lot of criminals is that they're very manipulative even when you try your hardest and use your best therapy skills or your best resources try to give them what you can um a lot of it ends up just being you know manipulation. Uh so yeah it's, it's
1: like what what's, what kind of manipulation like are they trying to like get you to like them like to believe them to, to uh, what, there's what's... a
0: lot of uh try to get some sympathy because that's definitely something that they don't often get um and being mental health staff in that kind of environment that's kind of one of the few people that they're going to get some maybe not sympathy but empathy maybe a little understanding um And so in that way, you know, they'll they'll tell you their story. Um, You know, I've encountered a few people who have lied about pretty significant events in their life um, to get some more time with mental health. Um, And unfortunately, you know, they're misguided in thinking that that's the only way that they can spend time with mental health professionals while they're incarcerated. Um, But in that way, it's very it's very frustrating because. Um, at least my experience, that's more of the, the top of of the crimes that people commit, not necessarily the people who are on the lower end of the spectrum.
1: We touched briefly that, you know, you have this aspect in the prison system and dealing with criminals and, mm-hmm. and that. But there's also the sort of yin to the yang where you're treating people that are not in prison, not incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're dealing with different kinds of problems, but just your mentality you have to like have, okay, prisoner hat on, prisoner hat off, like with your approach, just you like emotionally going into this? Like I would think the natural inclination for me, again, having not done it, but I, I'm trying to be honest about myself. I would think I would try to be a little more empathetic and sweet and nurturing and feeling with the, you know, wife that is trying to, you know improve her marriage or (laughs) or whatever versus like okay i'm going to treat like this criminal Mm -hmm. guy i would think the training would be what psychological issues or psychological issues but like do you ever Mm -hmm. fight that like that sort of is there a difference in how you approach that mentally like for you and your ad?
0: uh absolutely because uh i mean there's a whole book written about it um i think it's called it's like criminals and the games they play and something like that but no, it's all no, I about I got to buy it. I'm going to Amazon right after. <laughs> it's all about uh it's all about manipulation and um so I think that goes back there's definitely a different hat that you have to wear because you're not necess- and not to say that all criminals are liars. That's not necessarily the case. Most, you know, the human nature is that people lie. But especially in the criminal justice system and working corrections, you definitely have to be more cautious. I think, because there's a lot of the time there's secondary gain for them, whether it's, you know, getting out of their cell for a longer period of time or getting, you know, simple things like a book that they normally wouldn't get. Um,
1: And you're the ticket to that. Right. I mean, can't you like help them if like if you write a nice little report like on the clipboard, like, you know. You know, Joe uh, Joe Schmo, the, the criminal is going to get like a little like ten more minutes in the shower kind of thing or whatever. Like, don't you have some pull like with your report?
0: Um, so our reports are all confidential as far as mental health and medical, um, but we do have like kind of the ticket to getting them extra things that they normally wouldn't be able to get um, unless they had money on their accounts to purchase through commissary. So we can give them books. We can give them activities to do, things like that. But it often comes at the price of, you know, receiving what we call kites, which are just a request to talk to a mental health professional for some reason or another. And unfortunately, it comes down to, oh, I just wanted a book. Oh, I just wanted X, Y, and Z. So it's frustrating. You definitely have to wear a different hat while you're working in that kind of environment versus, you know, going to a private practice where people genuinely, normally are more uh, forthcoming and there's not any type of secondary gain that they can really obtain from paying to go see someone.
1: Yeah. It is a different mentality. I, I, you kind of put it well. If you're going up there more guarded. You're mm-hmm. just sort of on alert. Have you, do you feel like you have a pretty good success rate in terms of detecting when they're jerking your chain in, in the prison system? Like, are you about, what, 90%? Like, I can kind of tell you're full of shit.
0: Um. I'd say for the most part, not at first. Um, when I first started working corrections, um, I was at a prison um, in Indiana, and I was it was my first experience in corrections, um, and I was very naive. I hadn't read that little book that I spoke to you about, which I wish I could remember the name.
1: I'm gonna I, we're gonna find it <laughs> after. We're gonna, I'm gonna like I'm pulling up Amazon. As soon as, I mean, you had me at, like crime interesting yeah. crime book. It's like yeah, my shelf's embarrassing. But yeah, go on, go on.
0: Uh, So, yeah, I was no, I was very naive when I worked in in the prison system. And then as I furthered my career working with corrections, um, it was easier. I was still naive to a point. Um, And I think still more recently, you want to believe people, especially when they give you, you know, a very sad story. And then you try to help them out with resources and contacting people within the laws of HIPAA and and what have you. Um, But it does. It can backfire on you, so I think, especially more recently, I've been able to kind of detect what what people are trying to get at um, and get from us, or us trying to relay to hire people that can help them more um, in other aspects.
1: You have to have like I feel like an elite. B.S. detector to do what you do. (laughs) I mean, because, I mean, you don't even have to be in your position. You're dealing with it at the highest level. Mm -hmm. But, like, even, you know, I help manage a building, and we have, like, employees that come to us with two completely different stories. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, you know, or someone that's been late a hundred times, and Mm -hmm. they'll say oh, you know, my son has this problem or this affliction or that affliction. Sure. And that's why, you know, I was at the doctor's office with him. And then, you know, someone of their co-workers pissed that they're short on the floor. So they're coming up to me and saying, actually, here's this person's Instagram story. They were at this bar like, you know, it's not, <laughs> you know so it but then there's times where they are telling the truth. Mm-hmm. So there's no like I feel like I'm trying to be you on a much smaller scale, mm-hmm. but I might call you for some free, like, Hey, here's the story. Do you buy this shit or not? I don't, I just, like look at peer into their eyes to see their soul. Right. But so I want to transition to this. We touched on it a little bit. We met obviously, um, I mean, a bit ironically, I guess with what we're talking about at mm-hmm. a murder trial. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I love you to death. I wish I met you like somewhere other than a murder trial of, right. you know, a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, my dear friend of yours, uh, Again, Andrew Singler, Michigan State student, about to graduate and go on to dental school in two thousand and thirteen. You know, you mentioned this sort of instructed, informed your path a little bit. You were interested in psychology, but got you into the sort of criminal psychology element mm-hmm. and sort of spurred that. You seem to on on its face, you seem to have a lot of empathy just to do what you do generally. I'm curious, as it relates to you personally, somebody like this and sort of if you can relate to sort of the victims in these types of situations. So I want to give a quick little background on the case because you and I know it, but (laughs) we attended every day of the trial. And so basically, um, Andrew Singler was a senior at Michigan State on the verge of graduating, was out with his girlfriend in February. Uh, It was I don't know if it was actively snowing, but snow on the ground. It was a cold night and they were relatively intoxicated. Uh, She was having some trouble walking, I think, because of the ice on the ground. She hops on his back like piggyback ride. He slips on the ice. She falls off, hits her back on like a stake or a wooden something on the ground, hurts her back. They get into an argument over whatever. Uh, They're just, you know, they're drunk. They're bickering. They're doing what college kids do. And she sends a text message to her 19-year-old brother, a couple years younger, Um, who was asleep on the couch saying, Andrew broke my back, insinuating that he had assaulted her, which is, it's not disputed that that didn't happen. Even she admitted that that was a lie. Um, And that's fired off this uh, whole firestorm with the brothers now text messaging Andrew and they're Mm -hmm. shit-talking each other, one's drunk, one's sober. Uh, Connor ends up going to Andrew's apartment with a knife. There's a brief scuffle and he stabs him in the chest and kills him um one of the most senseless deaths maybe I've ever heard of. I mean certainly in my realm in um, a horrible case, Connor ends up being sentenced uh, to 20 to 60 years found guilty of second degree murder. There's no you know premeditation other than the instant before was the determination of the court, which is why it wasn't first degree. but I mean basically the second biggest charge you can get in the state of Michigan guilty of second degree murder again, 20 to 60 years was the sentence. There's some boxes checked with him, and I'm curious for your take on this, where he would be likely just on a statistical level, if you look at the data and people in these situations, he would be likely to be a successful parolee at some point in the first half of his sentence. Maybe not the first time he's eligible. I mean, I have it here. He's eligible very soon, relatively speaking, on a criminal murder trial scale. I think it's Is it tw- is it twelve years now? He's eligible. Um, yeah, because it was twenty years. So eight, Yeah, he's twelve years. He'll be eligible. Okay. R- relatively quickly. The boxes he checks: first time offender, mm-hmm. very young offender, nineteen, barely an adult legally, and there was no prolonged premeditation. He wasn't plotting this. It was a stupid thing that somebody mm-hmm. did. You have the empathy hat. Yeah, you know, we talked about that. You have to to do right. what you do. Do you just on a personal level, just kind of even put the clinical aside, like, do you personally have any feelings about him being up for parole in 12 years? Do you see him as someone that you would want out? How do you kind of deal with that mentally?
0: Uh, I mean, like you said, you know, he checks those boxes of, you know, being young, a first time offender, et cetera. Uh, I don't, empathy aside, I obviously don't <laughs> wish that. Um, because also the way that I see it is that, like you said, it was very senseless. Um, I guess it can kind of fall into one of those crimes of passion. But I think, you know, as we've said over the course of the past, what, eight years, almost eight years now, um, you know, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight or you don't bring a knife to a fistfight. Um, and it just seemed like such overkill. And when I speak about it with people, you know, if, if you want to harm someone, there's a million places that you can stab them without killing them. Um, and for me, that that that's kind of the off-putting part about it is that you went directly for an area in, in that person's body. So you you punctured their heart and they bled out. Um, so with that being said, that would be a concern of mine for someone being up for parole um, because, you know, there wasn't a knife to knife scuffle. There wasn't, a, you know, two people with a gun and, you know, multiple, you know, what gunshot wounds or, if it, you know, two people with knives, not multiple lacerations all over that person's body. It was, you know, someone with a hand and someone with a knife. Um, and like I said, he went directly for something, something. Somewhere that would would kill him. Um, And that's the part that makes me nervous. Yes, it was his first time offending, but it was in such a horrific way.
1: Obviously, I mean, the worst way. And I I mean, for the record, he in sort of contrast to every available evidence, forensically disputes that he was targeting anything that, that Andrew's on top of him, basically. I mean, not literally, but like upon him. And he was just waving the knife like, get off me. That was his exact kind of doing this back and forth yeah. thing. That makes no sense. Like, I mean, I'm not going to demonstrate this, but if you came up to me now and I waved like a kitchen knife around, like, you know, it's I'm not going to like puncture you. I mean, right. I like scratch you. Yeah. But You'll like, get
0: some surface la- lacerations. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it just made no sense. And they, it's not just our conjecture. I mean, they had a parade of forensic. You know, evidence mm-hmm. folks come through that yeah. trial. But just want to throw that out there that he, he he's denying that. I do have fears like for it because I don't want him to get paroled either. Certainly not in 12 years. It's right. like To me, like you kill the guy. The legal element that I thought was interesting was, and it's different in every state. And even in Michigan, it's kind of murky. The difference in mental capacity in that moment, there was mm-hmm. a diminished capacity for Andrew being intoxicated. Right. And the other guy's stone cold sober. I mean, even right. you don't have to be a, a, a warrior or a psychologist mm-hmm. to know that. Like we had a rule in my college house, like that. Look, like if you're getting into a fight and one guy's sober, like sober guy has to take the high road. Like, yeah. like if, like if my, <laughs> if my roommate's drunk and is like calling me names that I'm like just sober on the couch doing my homework because I'm studious like you, like I, like <laughs> I, I, I kind of have to give him a break yeah. and he'll give me the same break if the shoes mm-hmm. on the other foot at some point. Like, Sober guy's got to, like, kind of take it on the chin and just, within reason, it's on him to downplay it. In this case, the sober guy escalated it. So is there any distinction for you? Like, do you think you would look at it exactly the same if you were just someone watching the show that was a clinical psychologist looking at all of the evidence? Like, is it, are you tilted a little bit personally, do you think? I mean, it's hard not to be, but. Well,
0: I definitely think that, that I'm biased because of it being happy it's like one of your best friends right? right yeah um but i think even from a clinical perspective you know we i've seen uh criminals come in who are much older in their 60s and it's the first time they've ever committed a crime and it's a very heinous crime it's it's murder or it's assault with intent to murder or assault less than murder um or a very bad sex crime, a a sexual or a criminal sexual conduct charge. And for those people, if, you know, when they get sentenced to prison, if they get sentenced to prison and they come up for parole, you know, you got to look at, well, okay, you've gone your whole life and perhaps you've done this before and not got caught, but do I want you out and about walking around when there's seemingly no reason why that's happened.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I've always had a hard time with like the murder stuff, like ever letting anybody out. But, you know, and, and I mean, there was that famous thing with you know, George H.W. Uh, Bush and Dukakis were there at this debate and Dukakis was very anti-capital punishment and the debate moderator, you know, was kind of talking about that. And then it's like, hey, if Kitty Dukakis, his wife was, I'm paraphrasing, bound and killed, like, would you want that guy to be sentenced? And he totally... Right. He slobbered all over. He didn't even have an answer. I can't even tell you what his answer was because he just kind of blah blah blah. It was all over the place. The correct answer to that, if if you really are anti capital punishment and want to maintain that position, would be, yeah, I would want the guy dead. I would want to strangle him myself. But there's a reason why, if you've even read about the case, you can't be on a jury. Let alone we we don't have victim spouses on juries. Like (laughs) so that was it. Was such an easy. I don't know how he didn't see that one coming. That's the proper answer. So it's like. I'm asking you obviously for an objective opinion, but it's impossible for you to be objective. But I don't know. Personally, I, at the risk of being unprofessional and you can nod or roll your eyes or just not say anything, that family to me is nuts. The McCowan family, I'll, I'll never forget sitting when the verdict was read and they're uh, guilty of second degree murder. You would have thought that they convicted him of being a space alien. They were like <laughs> stunned, despite like two weeks of evidence it was so just from a legal perspective so yeah. overwhelming it was really just a matter of like okay there's a 5% chance they go murder one unlikely but that was the only question there was mm-hmm. no question like they thought he was going to get acquitted like just unbelievable right. but i had to sneak that in there like Fuck that family. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I just, yeah, for the records, So no, we'll move on. I mean, unless you have anything to add, I don't know. I, I don't want to get you in trouble talking about uh, maybe, maybe off camera. So we touched a little bit about nature versus nurture. Generally, Do you have like kind of a, a lean one. We said it's both. We agree. It's both. Do you think it's one more than the other? Do you see kind of one being more prevalent? Cause I was always more of a nurture guy personally
0: i definitely do think that it's more life circumstances um like i said you can be most mental illness has a genetic component aside from personality disorders that's 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 just or i guess i should shouldn't say aside from personality disorders personality disorders are not things that are going to change for the most part they're not you, that's going to occur no matter what it's going to happen in your life at some point, like people who have antisocial personality disorder, more commonly known as sociopaths. Um, that's not something that is going to either develop or not develop based on how you're raised. But for the most part, most other mental health disorders do have a very genetic component. If you have a, a parent, a grandparent, however, whatever, with a mental health issue, you're more likely to develop it. And I do think that a lot of it has to do with how you're raised. Like I said, you know, I've, I've heard so many horrible stories about people's childhood and how they were raised. And, you know, I wish, obviously I can't, but I wish I could rewind and see how these people would turn out had they not experienced those things or see how they would turn out if they had the resources to seek help for all this traumatic experience that they've gone through, if that would have changed the outcome of why they're now in jail or in prison.
1: And there's no way in my head, like even if you had the genetic proclivity predisposition to go a certain route, whatever Mm -hmm. it's, whatever form of criminality, take take your pick. There's no way that the, if your dad is like beating the shit out of you from age zero to 10, right. but that's not going to at least ramp up how that ends up manifesting down the road. Mm-hmm. So even like, let's, maybe I would have been a petty thief and now I'm like, you know, Bernie uh, Madoff. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just feel like it is both, but there's no way. Cause there is one of my best friends, Jack is like, I mean, he doesn't completely reject nature uh, or nurture, but he's like 99% nature. Like Criminals, they're, they're, fu- like they're born bad, like good and evil kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Not in a religious sense, but just like certain people are fucked, that's it. And I'm more like, come on, like there's a reason why there's a correlation between, I mean, anything, not even just criminality. Like if your parents were divorced, you're more likely to be divorced. Sure. Like if, if your dad hit you, you're more likely to hit your kids. I mean, it's not yeah. definite, but I don't, but there's, people like strangely reject that. I find that so odd.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think, and it also goes one of two ways, which is also interesting to me. You can have people who have been abused by their their parents, loved ones, whatever, and then do the same to their family, or you can have them so traumatized by that 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 would never happen. So I think that part's just fascinating, too, because despite a predisposition and all this trauma that you've experienced that you kind of see as, oh, well, this is normal for any family, like they just, they hit each other. Um, you can grow up and you can have the total opposite. You can be the most, you know, caring and nurturing and loving individual to your family and your friends. So I think it's, it's complicated. All that to say, it's very complicated. That's a
1: great point though, because that's even in my, not my personal life within this house, but my social circle, it does seem to be one extreme or the other. Like, If you do have the abusive dad, you're either, like, the guys that I know that their dads were, like, I mean, I saw them, like, pin their sons against the wall when I was over, like, awkwardly, two of them in particular. Like, they either become the abuser or the best dad in the world. Like, they don't become, like, an average dad. They're either, like, the clone or close to it or the complete opposite. Like, I mean, there's exceptions to everything always, but I think it's a great point. Like, it kind of lands one way or the other. You don't land. There's
0: kind not, in what I've experienced, not to say that there isn't, in what I've experienced, there's not much of a, a middle. No,
1: ground. it doesn't seem like it. I mean, anecdotally, in my case, your professional observations obviously carry a little more weight, but it's interesting. I never like thought about that, but it is one or the other. It's one extreme or the other. So I want to transition to this a little bit. Now we've talked a lot about criminality and you've run the specter. We've talked about people knocking over mailboxes and people doing the worst <laughs> of the worst stuff. Again, any viewer of a prison movie including Shawshank Redemption the aforementioned Mm -hmm. knows generally the pedophile in prisons are the lowest of the low I mean on the totem pole of the hierarchy like those are the guys like even the like the rapist murders that strangled their wives like even those guys are like oh fuck that guy Mm -hmm. like it's just yes yeah And, and you know I think I I get that I understand. I'm curious where you stand, sort of, on the treatment aspect of this. So he pulled this. I I've actually done a lot of reading on this. Certainly not putting myself up against you, but this is one sort of corner of psychology that I am an amateur expert in. Amateur expert in just because I've read so much. But this is a guy named uh, Justin Lay Miller, a PhD, studied this stuff pretty intensely. Has published articles, books, newsletters, everything on this topic. And this was his conclusion, specifically about. Pedophiles. Quote, psychologists and psychiatrists have been searching for a cure for pedophilia for decades. An effective treatment has been elusive. The focus of intervention should be on management rather than cure. Pedophiles are a ticking time bomb. So that was, again, an expert in the field, a licensed psychologist himself, a PhD, uh, well-published guy who studied this intensely. His, and and I didn't pull the whole article, but in that article, he does go on to explain that basically the treatment is teach these people to just avoid playgrounds kind of thing. I mean, that's sort of the the ultimate dumbing down, but Mm -hmm. like, don't be alone with a kid. There's no like, oh, I'm going to you know, do talk therapy and make you see the light that I shouldn't touch this kid or be attracted mm-hmm. to this kid. So I, I'm curious, you know, we talked about redemption and, you know, people deserving treatment despite the most heinous of crimes, but the consensus seems to be, and you can dispute me if you've read something or studied something differently, that the consensus in the psychiatric, the psychological, or uh, psychology community is, it's not treatable. Like, you if that's who you are, you're always going to want to lurch for the kid. And mm-hmm. there's also, um, you know, heap which is sort of the more to catch a predator, Chris Hansen stuff, where Mm -hmm. it's like pedophilia, people get it mixed up. Pedophilia is like an Mm -hmm. eight-year-old. Heephilia is like you're going for the high school kid, like Mm -hmm. 13 or 14, like middle school, high school. so a little older, but all the same thing. There's no treatment for it. First, like, let's start there. Do you agree that these people are kind of psychologically, there's no touching that really? It's more just keep them out of the the schools and playgrounds kind of thing?
0: I personally haven't um, been, I mean, I have knowledge of, treatments that are used. Um, the success rate I'm not super familiar with. One of my own coworkers has worked pretty extensively with juvenile sex offenders, um, which is a, another strange area because you're not an adult, you know, harming a child. You're a juvenile harming a child, but nonetheless, it's, it's awful. Um, and it's, it just seems to be kind of kind of a gray area. Um, I don't know that I really know of or have experienced someone who's done some like 180, um, especially if it's not their first time. Usually it's not. Um, and I mean, when you see the sentencing for these individuals or they get out on parole or on probation, what have you, it's always, you know. You can't, like you said, you you can't come in within five hundred feet of an elementary school. You can't be around anyone under the age of, whatever. Um, it's it sounds kind of like maintenance, um, and I don't know a lot of people who work with sex offenders with some great success. It seems. It
1: seems pretty pretty helpless like to me from what i've studied and the whole like hey, you know by court order stay 500 feet away from a school like that's nice i i'm great like i'm glad that's on the the docket sure at the end of the day that's like speed limit 50 like <laughs> if i'm gonna go 55 like right. unless you have a tether that's going to mm-hmm. alert the authorities or shock you and all these schools are equipped with a detector a tether detector right. like it's a, it's a speed limit sign, mm-hmm. essentially. So you're not really feeling protected. And like, I just like, what do we do with these people? If the conclusion, I know you said you don't have a ton of experience, but like, if we are to even just for argument's sake, say that Justin Way Miller's uh, conclusion is correct, that there's no real credible psychologist or psychiatrist that thinks that this is treatable. What do we do with them? Like, because if you look at what the sentencing is, very rarely, unless there's violence involved, these guys aren't getting life in prison. I know one that didn't even get jail time. A friend of the family, girl was 19. Uh, obviously, she was of legal age, was engaged, pregnant with his child. He was 32. And I think she was seven or eight months pregnant, like nearing the end, third trimester. And he gets busted in a sting trying to meet a 13-year-old. And that was a fake 13-year-old in a Wendy's parking lot. He got, and they had him red-handed. Talking to her for months, trying to get, mm-hmm. m- went to meet her, and he didn't even get jail time in Illinois. It, no, it was probation. He's mm-hmm. still, you could look him up as a registered sex offender. Mm-hmm. No jail time. That's a guy that was a 32 year old trolling for a 13 year old. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be illegal if she was 15, 16, but like on the degrees of bad, 13 is like mm-hmm. really young. Right. I just like to me, I know. You're closer to a criminologist than I am, but you're still coming from more of the psychiatric angle. But like, what, mm-hmm. what do you do with somebody like that? We're not safe with that guy, for example, running around, right? I wouldn't want my daughter in the same like, zip code as the guy.
0: Sure, of course. And I've talked about this with you know friends that I have that work uh, you know, as deputies in corrections. And, you know, kind of consensus is like, it's probably going to sound very unprofessional, but like, let's just throw them all on an island. I'm I'm for it. I'm
1: fine with that. Shoot them out of a cannon, especially um, if their guilt is, but you know,
0: right. Um, and you know, you see, I've encountered varying degrees of people who feel ashamed. Um, there's sort of, um, I wouldn't say it's that, it's not victimless, but people who are caught with child pornography, things like that, um, versus people who are predatory sex offenders, people who seek out. Someone to victimize. Um, those I've spoken with don't show as much remorse. I think it's the people who are caught with the child pornography that I've seen really like break down. Like this is such a mistake. I can't believe I did that. Whether it's genuine or not, I don't know. But that's kind of what I've seen. Um, but I've also seen people on the on of on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, and in a bragging way. Um, so, I mean, I guess all of that to say, I don't have a great answer for it either because unlike other, you know, because pedophilia is a mental health diagnosis currently. Oh, it is. Is it in the DSM-5? It is. Yeah, I didn't even know that. Yes, it is in the DSM-5. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, and I know they're trying, at least this was told to me i don't know how accurate it's going to be for the dsm-6 is that it's going to be a fetish or some people are trying to make it a fetish under the fetishistic disorders um i don't know if that's going to happen i know there was some kind of like lobbying for it some people backing it which i would grossly disagree with uh that's a crime you're ruining a child's life um so I don't know, like, I guess all of that to say, I don't, I don't know that there is a good answer that there is a good treatment or if there's just more maintenance, like you're just keeping them at a distance from who they victimized first.
1: And again, I mean, it it is, again, sort of the speed limit thing, though, like it's the speed mm-hmm. limit sign. It's kind of a trick question because there is no answer. I mean, right. people have been debating this stuff forever. And that's mm-hmm. like, from your perspective, clinically, I'm going to treat this person. It's pretty helpless. But even just from the pragmatist, you know, deputy or, uh, you know, district attorney or whomever, like, how do you just keep your community safe? Like, you're not going to put somebody in prison for life because when they were 30, they, you know, I be I mean, it's technically, it's statutory rape the 14-year-old. Like, that person's not going to go to jail for 50 years. Like, that's we're never going to get there. Whether or not we should, that's a different story. We won't go there. But it's like, if we can't treat them, and we're not going to incarcerate them for life, they have to be in the community by default. Mm And we can't monitor people. We don't have the resources to do anything that we need to do as it is, like let alone right. start adding other stuff. It's, there is no answer. It's just mm-hmm. an interesting exercise to even think about. It's depressing as fuck, to be honest. But <laughs> I don't know. There's, I was just curious for your take on it. So I don't know. It's pretty messed up. Let's get into something a little more clear cut with a little more of an obvious solution. This is an obvious, me lock them away, throw away the key, and that's exactly what happened. We postponed the show. Originally, this wasn't going to be on the docket, but <laughs> you gave me a little more time to dig into it. Right. The Chris Watts story. Best. Chris Watts was a very famous case in 2018. Murdered his wife and two young daughters, age four and three, Bella and Celeste. This was the subject of a documentary on Netflix, uh, An American Murder, I
0: think it was called. Yeah, Next Door.
1: Thank you. Murder <laughs> Next Door or whatever. Say thank you. You're more prepared than the host. Thank <laughs> <at> you too. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I told everyone you're a lot smarter. So you're on the ball. So, I mean, whatever you think of Netflix, I don't know a lot of people that haven't seen this. So, you know, I have a lot of like weird friends that are in this kind of stuff. But um, one of the more intriguing cases, and here's why we talked about it a little bit in the intro with what are the warning signs? Jeffrey Dahmer was hurting animals. animals. Yeah. You know that's sort of the the common one, mm-hmm. but there's you know you see lighting things on fire arson. Mm-hmm. You you sort of see these steps. Now, who knows that Chris Watts one day kicked a cat and nobody right. knew? He didn't tell anybody. No one saw it. Totally possible. Like, uh, but there was no evidence of him mm-hmm. fitting this profile of a guy who was objectively smart, uh, did really well in school, IQ test was way above average. I think he was like ninety five tile, I read. Um, You know, bright guy, worshipped his wife by all accounts. Mm -hmm. Everyone that knew him said, father of the year. Like there wasn't a single person that said, not even, oh, I didn't think he had that in him, but like not even criticism, not even, oh, he was annoying at dinner. Like (laughs) Like, everybody loved the fucking guy. I'm so fascinated by this. I'm curious for your take. We won't get into the whole case. Watch the documentary on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Uh, Becca will tell you the title if you need it. you know but what what's sort of your take on this it just in general there's usually signs with this stuff right i mm-hmm. mean this is an outlier generally with this chris watts thing
0: right uh i i, I mean i definitely think there's an out, it's an outlier cuz you know like you said the the normal whatever you know hurting animals you know setting fires what have you as far as i know and as far as the literature and the documentaries and whatever that's that wasn't the case and I know in the documentary there was some, like, arguing and tiffs and fighting between him and his wife, but the whole just, and including, you know, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say that it could be expected, but it would be more, I guess, understood, or, that's probably not the right word either, but for lack of a better one, if he just killed his wife, but then killing his two children is just, it's just bizarre. And his demeanor the whole time. I mean, in the documentary, his name was straight called him out in like the first 10 minutes. It was yeah. like, this dude backed his truck into his garage like he did it.
1: Yeah. Um, that that guy nailed it. He did yeah. with the
0: first like, like five, 10 minutes of the thing, which I thought was very interesting. He's a very observant guy, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, the way his whole demeanor of, you know, being really upset and... Uh, you know, things like that. And just, you know, I don't know if my wife went off with someone else or I don't know where she is. Like, I hope she's safe. Like, I don't know. The whole thing is just so odd. And so like, I, he's just kind of like uh, another like textbook definition of a sociopath. There's that there's that forced sadness or forced emotion um, about what he did.
1: And even that, I mean, they had to drag it. You say forced, forced, maybe like forced with an immense amount of force. I mean, right. the, the detective flat out said before he had confessed to uh, originally he had mm-hmm. confessed to killing his wife because right. she had killed the kids, which was which not true. obviously yeah, <laughs> not, was true. not true. But initially, the detective flat out this this detective, there were two of them, kind of going at him. But the the female detective went right after him and was like why aren't you more upset like right. it's on tape you can watch the interrogation i mm-hmm. think that part was in the documentary i've watched the entire raw footage like 72 times so <laughs> i i have a, i have like an encyclopedic knowledge of that uh, interrogation but she said like kind of what's your problem like these are your two like why aren't you upset and then they had interviewed him over the course of two days or hours right. and he was had shown no emotion the second she said like why aren't you crying it's not because I'm not sad. It's like to like the force. like <laughs> right. He had to basically be told, why aren't you crying? And then immediately, four and a half hours collectively over the course of two days of grilling the guy, nothing. The second, hey, why aren't you crying? Oh, okay, better turn on the waterworks. Right. Like that's your, you are, I mean, I know you can't diagnose somebody from afar that's against, but like and if we were talking about somebody like this, like the Dr. Grande on YouTube, like we're just, I'm not talking about Chris Watts. I'm talking about somebody that did everything Chris Watts did. That is a sociopath. Like Chris Watts was a sociopath, right?
0: Yeah. for Yeah. For, for, if, if you had to like, you know, put a deaf or a diagnosis to an individual, I would, I would say that, yeah, like, like I said, antisocial personality disorder kind of goes along with sociopathy.
1: It's interesting though. Like he, nobody saw that he was actually considered as very feeling very, the opposite of unfeeling like, you know, his, his mother-in-law. Uh, I guess former mother-in-law told the story of you know, her daughter, the eventual victim in this case, or one of the victims, had lupus and had a lot of health issues that sort of come along in the ride with lupus, and she couldn't sleep all the time. They had been dating for like a week, and by some miracle of God or whomever, she was able to sleep on his lap for like four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. This was the most she had slept in like six months, and the guy's like been dating her for like a week or two. It wasn't like his wife or his fiance or something. And he just sat there, like not trying to move, like mm-hmm. to let her rest. And that was the story she recalled in hindsight. Looking back, this guy was not just, oh, no warning signs were detected. It was like the total opposite. It was not only were there no warning signs, he was a beloved guy, right. his coworkers loved him, his friends loved him, he was quiet, they all said he was quiet, but- salt to the earth, you know, in terms of doing you favors, would bend over backwards for you. Mm-hmm. Was a great dad, would write his kids, his two young kids, little notes in their lunch boxes every mm-hmm. day. To me, that's why it sticks out. I mean, I find all this stuff, Dahmer, Bundy fascinating. The Chris Watts thing has resonated. There's a lot of people that have you know, family annihilators they are called killed their whole families. The reason this one has resonated is there's no Chris Benoit, the WWF wrestler that had all his head trauma. He was diagnosed post mortem, like everyone is, with CTE. Mm-hmm. He had all his steroid issues. His chemicals were all fucked up. Like, he did a horrible thing. He fit the profile of most family annihilators where he killed himself after the mm-hmm. deed was done. Like, there is this category of people that do stuff like this. This guy's like a one of one, though, where he didn't kill himself. There was no warning sign. I mean, CTE can only be died, but I don't, there's no reason to think the guy has CTE.
0: Right. Unless you have some. You know, unless we don't know that he played rugby or football or something. There's no reason to think that. Yeah, Yeah, he had
1: no erratic behaviors. Chris Benoit had erratic behaviors, insomnia. Like it seemed to fall out of the sky, and it's. I think it resonated because it was so alarming to people, and that beyond the intrigue, if this guy could do that, which is the worst thing ever, right? How can you trust anybody?
0: Right.
1: I mean, there's people I know that. Like, I like a lot less than everyone like that guy that knew him. <laughs> right. And it's like, I, I don't think they're going to, you know, kill their wife. It's, but don't you just find that as as an academic, someone that's in the mud with stuff like this, don't you find it kind of uh, alarming that that whole case? Like, there was, there was nothing you could do.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, like you said, there's no warning signs, there's nothing typical about it. Uh, it, it was the opposite of what you would expect from someone. And. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, and at least from, I watched it right before we were supposed to do the, the first time I was supposed to be on here, but I can't remember if I'll fill gave, you in. Yeah, I'm ready. I'll, I'll, I'll be, to, I'll be the guest. Cause I know he murdered his wife after his children, right?
1: Well, no. Um, I mean, this is, he's the only witness that's still alive, but right. the official story and, and the investigators believe this is, but his version he, is, uh, he and his wife got into an argument. Uh, she came home. She had suspected he was having an affair. Mm-hmm. He was acting weird for a couple of weeks. And he told her, we're not compatible anymore. She had come in from a, a flight on a work trip at mm-hmm. 1.40 in the morning. You see her coming in the house, like on their little security camera. They get into a fight shortly thereafter. Sometime between 1.40 and 5.15 when he's loading her body into his truck, mm-hmm. there's some kind of scuffle uh, or argument. And he strangled her. The kids came in and said, "Hey, what's wrong with Mommy?" They were alerted yes, by the sound. Yeah, okay. And his version is they were alive in the truck when he drove to the oil site, dumped your yes, body, and then he killed that. them. Yep. There there's some people, there's smart people on both sides of this. It really doesn't matter that say they were all dead with at the house and you know, that who cares? Right. I mean, at that point that's immaterial, but um, yeah. Did, was, were you going somewhere with that? Like, I don't know. Should I, should I tell the whole story? Or, I don't
0: know. No, I just, I just couldn't remember which, which way it had gone, but no, what I was wondering is if, cause I couldn't recall if he gave any type of explanation as to why he also killed his children.
1: None. I mean, and and not for lack of people asking. I mean, I know there were uh, investigators that one of them, an FBI agent, there's like a four hour YouTube video with horrible audio. They interviewed this fucking guy with like an AC unit blasting right next to it. You can, you can make everything out, but it's a painful listen. Have I listened to it multiple times? Yes. Yes. (laughs) But uh, it's a painful listen. My eardrums are are like still carved from having listened to it a couple of times, but they're trying to like, why'd you do it? And he, he doesn't know. Now, the theory is he had his mistress on the side, Nicole Kessinger. He wanted to start a new life with her. He right. murdered his family. And the first thing he did was disenrolled his dead kids from school and was looking up, he, uh, called his real estate agent to sell his house. And he was looking up uh, discount vacations in like Boulder or something mm-hmm. like for his, him and his mistress. So it, th- it seems like this guy wanted to get away with this. That's sort of a common sociopathic mm-hmm. thing, right? They think Maybe that's more psychopath. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. One of them or both of them think that they can get away with everything. They sort yeah. of overestimate. Is that accurate? Their ability to get away with things.
0: Yeah, well, uh, like being very narcissistic. Um, There's some more narcissism. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, he's probably a narcissist too. I mean, you can have multiple. Prob- yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's the. It's just. It's so like again. Nobody saw that coming. Like, what do you do with that? I, there's no good answer to that either. We're no. asking a lot of, like, impossible to answer questions. Right. But, like, if this guy did it, it's like, anybody could do it. I mean, you might kill me on, on your way out of here for all I know. <laughs> I don't think so. But I this, this guy's wife didn't see it coming. There's no evidence of anything. I, he had, I, I keep up on this guy because I'm a weirdo. He's in very recent vintage gone the religious conversion route. This is I've like I've seen that. With, i was gonna ask you. Yes, yeah. is this uh, is pretty. Do you buy that for people generally? it seems kind of like a
0: truthfully. Yeah. Uh, n- no, um, I think with some people, there. I think I, I, there are people that I do generally feel like they have guilt and they need to find some way to reconcile with what they've done. Um, but I do see it with a lot of offenders um you know like I read my bible every day I go to you know a bible study etc and it I don't know it just kind of like it kind of makes you wonder like are you just is this some sort of atonement that you think you're going to get out of it or are you really seeking religion for I don't know there's so many reasons that I don't necessarily know if I buy I guess.
1: I think it's one of two things. I think it's, and maybe a little bit of both in some cases, but I don't see a door number three. It's either a form of blatant manipulation. Like we talked about it earlier. Mm-hmm. Show me sympathy. I'm seeking redemption. Either that, or it is somewhat genuine, but like, how did you come to it? It's kind of like, it's like giving somebody credit for eating bread when they were starving and bread was the only thing on the table. Like when you're in prison, yeah, God's kind of all you have. I, I'm not going yeah. to aspire to be an astronaut. I'm in I'm in prison, like <laughs> yeah. so. I'm I'm going to seek God. Well, you're not gonna you're not gonna seek the the lunar landing because that's not an option. Mm-hmm. Like there's only so much you can do. I I find it funny. He I mean I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he has said in letters recently his goal is like to become a preacher and like get out of prison and okay. like start his own you know like a church or be a, like kind of like a uh, Joel Osteen type. Oh yeah,
0: that's definitely one I would
1: could you think. imagine like going to the Chris Watts like, <laughs> you know, seek religion or have you, you know, channeled your inner God yet? Like the guy's nuts like yeah. to even buy that. But I found him fascinating. And I I'm, I'm wasted, I think that religious conversion shit is is bullshit. Last thing we'll touch on before the speed round, because I know you're a working person with a lot to do and a lot of people that okay. you know you gotta hit that one in five hundred. We'll hit it briefly. Simone Biles, this is a, a complete, we're totally, obviously, out of the criminal path, more of the mm-hmm. sort of mental health path generally. Simone Biles was big in the news a month ago when we originally had you uh, pegged to be in. Uh, U.S. Olympian, one of the I mean, five best female athletes on the planet right now, maybe 10 best athletes, period. I mean, just an elite, elite athlete, was uh, famously in the news for dropping out an event on the doorstep of an event. Uh, due to mental health, citing her mental health. I found the response to this interesting on both sides. I think kind of everybody got it wrong. So this is one tweet that we pulled: CBS News, this was actually them teasing an article from uh, a fellow gymnast, Nastia Lukin. But the headline is, What Simone Biles did in Tokyo is more impressive than any of her past Olympic wins. Former Team USA gymnast Nastia Lukin praised Biles as a role model. So this is an article, and we had clicked on it and gone through it. It's, it's basically the narrative is Simone Biles is the greatest hero ever, that's ever lived. The response, we get both. It was two extremes with no middle. This is one of them we pulled from a, a fairly well-known guy in the sort of dude space, the male Twitter space, mm-hmm. Tanner Guzzi, published author himself, kind of an interesting guy. Let's leave it at that. He said, you used to be a winner when you won. Then you were a winner when you participated. Now you're a winner for not participating. This was in direct response to the uh, previous tweet. So his takeaway is basically, why are we celebrating this person for backing out? I I, and he went on other narratives in that direction. I I landed somewhere in the middle. I I have a sense where you might land, but I don't think. First of all, mental health obviously important. Mm -hmm. Nobody should be ripping her. Like if she needed to withdraw, like. Do what you got to do. Take care of yourself. You'll probably think I'm an asshole. You may end the friendship. I think we went a little over the top with like the Simone Biles is the most brave hero that's ever lived. And I mean, it's kind of like South Park spoofed this with Caitlyn Jenner Mm -hmm. when Caitlyn Jenner, you know, announced the transition. And it was Cosmo or whatever magazine did the magazine cover. And South Park sort of teased it as like the stunning and brave bit. Like, oh, Caitlyn Jenner, you can't say anything bad about Caitlyn Jenner. You know, she's so stunning and brave. Like, kind of where did you land on this? It seemed like everyone was either she's a hero, God bless her, or, like, she's a quitter, she abandoned her team. I was in the rare kind of middle. Where do you land on that?
0: I definitely don't think that she's a quitter. Um, I mean, given the history that she had with Larry Nassar, um, I mean, that poor girl's gone through hell. Um, and... I think it's important that there was there's someone as famous as she is and who's been so successful in what she does to shed light on the issue of mental health and kind of say like if you're not feeling like your best self or if you're really struggling, it's okay to not do some things, even though you know her current life was being in the Olympics, being a gymnast in the Olympics and I can see why people felt let down her teammates, you know, other people who are big fans of her. But I think ultimately it set a good example for people who might not have necessarily thought, well, I just have to suck it up or who, did think I just have to suck it up. Like I don't have other options.
1: What is your response to somebody like Tanner Guzzy? If Tanner Guzzy, and he, that was just one. I mean, there's, <laughs> that was a very like oh, yeah. 40 to 50% of the responses I saw throughout that two week period where that was a hot story. Like if, if I'm Tanner Guzzy, I'm sitting here and I'm telling you like, look, I know you have the fancy pieces of paper on the wall and you're <laughs> more educated than I am, but like, you know, man up or woman up or whatever, like, come on, your team needs you. Like, how do you kind of, respond to that what would you say that i mean i'm i'm a lot more in the center than than he was like i mean what's your response to somebody like that
0: uh i guess i would just say that they're very uneducated about how devastating mental health issues can be to someone maybe they haven't gone through what other people have gone through you know like i said with her with Larry Nasser, just the surmounting pressure that it is being so young and being this huge gymnast with such success that is always expected to be nothing but perfect. Um, So yeah, I guess I would just say, you know, like I don't, I from your perspective, and you don't seem to be educated on really how bad mental health can be and how bad it can affect you, and you're not even touching on the fact that. That this, this girl, I mean, she's still young, is st- still expected by the entire world to be perfect no matter what, even with the things that she's gone through.
1: It's tough to go through that stuff like in you know, like your room in your house, like mm-hmm. just privately right. or with your intimate circle. Like going through stuff with that's just the national, like the international community watching mm-hmm. you would have to suck. Like, I just, I can't imagine that. I, I always relate to, and this is where I get into way more into like the, first of all, if I had to like pick, you know, if I had to pick a side and didn't be kind of like, okay, she's not a hero, but she did the right thing. I, like, I'm i glad she did what she did. Like, I'm not her. I always say, uh, my good friend, Chris Castellani, and by the way, I'm not betraying any trust here. He openly talks about this on his Twitter feed and videos and stuff, has dealt with depression for as long as he can remember. And, you know, he says things like, he, he, you know, uh, he'll say things like, um, I don't know if I'm any good at this. He's now since been hired by Barstool. He's this big blowing up sports personality. But throughout this whole timeline, he's saying, I, I don't know if I'm any good at this. I'm just going to quit. I had a terrible sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling him, like, dude, you're fucking way better than everybody at this. Like, you just right. wait. You're, you're He's a lot younger than I He's like 23. It's like, dude, okay. you're, you're going to be a star. Like yeah. you, you don't see that. But. I, I'm not in his head. Like I don't have his, I'm not going to use the term broken brain, but Mm -hmm. like, I don't have his perspective. So he doesn't see things the way I do. So Mm -hmm. like with Simone Biles or someone like Tanner Guzzi commenting, and I'm just using Tanner as an example, not picking on the guy, but like, you can understand. I mean, it's, it's like a, a, you know, a dude being like, Hey, you know, it's a woman's menstrual cycle or something, having cramps. It's like, suck it up. It's like, dude, like you can't you can't relate. I mean, Mm -hmm. is that kind of a fair characterization? You just, you have no idea.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and even if you have experienced your own depression, you still can't relate. And I think one of my, one of the things I tell most of my clients is the phrase that I hate the most is that it could be worse because everyone's worse is subjective. You know, you could have, you could spill your Starbucks on your lap and that is just the absolute worst thing that you've ever gone through in your life or your whole, family have been, has been murdered and that's the worst thing you know it's on such a huge spectrum and some people can deal with their worst better than others but it it kind of puts aside people's own subjective experiences and makes them feel like oh well i guess this isn't as bad because someone over here has cancer they're going to die from but i'm feeling really depressed. Um, and I feel like that's kind of the space where a lot of people come from. You can't relate, you can't get inside of this girl's mind and, you know, know how she's, how she's thinking, how she's feeling, you know, she could be on the verge of, you know, you know, having some real serious, like suicidal ideation that she's not going to express to the media, but anyone who knows anything about spoon vials and the whole Olympic gymnastics teams knows that they went through hell um and even him just not giving her credit for that and just kind of like brushing that off I think is terrible and it's definitely not even addressing what she's gone through and there's no way that he can or anyone can really get inside someone else's head unless you know, you obviously sit in front of them and they're telling you this is exactly how I feel. So, I mean, that tweet definitely is is something that would make me want to punch someone in the face. Yes,
1: yeah, so that's what I was looking for. So, hey, But you, you are a literal expert in this stuff. So, I mean, it, this is not to I mean, I'm the guy at the bar, but I'm not talking to another guy or gal at the bar. Like I'm talking to an expert in this stuff. So you get it in a unique way on why. That doesn't make any sense. Like mm-hmm. that's that's not a practical way to go about it. I I just I think like even the empathy aspect aside, I think that kind of response where it's like you know what like pull up your bootstraps like kind of f you toughen up. Mm-hmm. I think there is a place for that, to a much lesser degree. Like if you're you know off the top of my head, I, I'm gonna pull a bad example that you'll probably you know, taught me for, but like, you know, if my son in five years doesn't make the T-ball team and is like in bed for six days and it's just like, it's the worst thing ever. uh, Sorry. I, maybe it's bad. Maybe you'll like think I'm evil at some point. I'm going to be like, Hey man, like let's at least go for a walk. I'm not saying like, Hey, toughen up. You're a pussy or something. I don't mean like be mean, but like, I think there's something to be said for, Like, come on, we're not laying in bed all day. We got to like get up and move or do something. But like short of that, like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sort of tough love, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about like basically being mean about somebody going through that stuff. Like, hey, why are we celebrating this loser? Like that perpetuates that stuff, right? Doesn't that make mental health worse? If everyone just had, you know, your perspective in terms, you know, or I think even closer to mine, I just think this stuff wouldn't be as big of an issue. Not that it would obliterate mental health, but Mm -hmm. don't you see it as – perpetuating this stuff. It's the same thing with uh, stigma with addiction, you know, drug addiction, mm-hmm. alcoholism. I feel like if everyone could just be nice and give people a, a little bit of a break, like it wouldn't be half the issue that it is. Mm-hmm. They would see treatment, right?
0: Yeah, and I think, and I think that's part of the reason why I think it was important that Simone Biles, well, not important that she did what she did, but that she did what she needed to do for herself because a lot of the times you don't see people of that you know, caliber and people are that famous admit that they have mental health issues and that they just can't perform or do whatever they have to do because of what they're struggling with. And mental health is still, even after so many years, it's still taboo, especially, I think, amongst men. Um, you know, I think the ratio of people who seek mental health treatment, men to women, it's by far more than women. There's still that stigma, um, that mental health isn't a thing you just like you said you gotta like just you know suck it up um it's not it's not a real issue and it's not a real harm but that's not the case
1: i don't know if we've come a long way but we've come a little way with that but there is a disparity for sure mm-hmm. i think mean, there's like men are terrible with that stuff <laughs> it, it, that's just the mentality it's the macho thing right, right um you know you guys uh as the collective gender are farther ahead I think in that development <laughs> maybe we'll catch up to where you are now in like 50 years and then by then you'll have, you have no mental health issues or stigmas at all but mm-hmm. I don't know it's I, I understood what people said like why are we making this person out she did the right thing she yeah. did what I would want like my daughter to do or a friend of mine to do um, I do understand why people are like, come on, do we, do we have to throw a parade for two weeks? But I mean, you kind of have an interesting perspective, too, is it was a good example to be like, look, if Simone Biles, who's like one of the best athletes on the planet, right. can, you know, in the face of criticism, be like, you know mm-hmm. what, I'm going to take care of myself. I do see a lot of value in that. So I don't know. It's not often people kind of tilt me in their direction on this show. I'm very stubborn, but uh, <laughs> you, you you probably got me on that one. So we'll wrap there for the body of the show. Um I want to talk a little bit about uh, a wide variety of things. We teased the speed round with you before. So you have a little bit of a picture of what we're doing. The religious viewers of this show, of which there are many, there's thousands of people that just love us, already know where we're going. But for the few that don't, uh, speed round, we're going to hit like, I don't know, seven or eight. We're going to get to it. Short and sweet. <laughs> talk as long as you want, Becca, okay? So um, like I said, I'm not going to cut you off, but this, this gets me into the <laughs> smorgasbord. So we'll start here. You're a Spartan. We talked about it briefly. Of course. It's the best thing to be in the world. Everyone knows <laughs> yes. it. What do you miss most about Michigan State?
0: Uh, I guess probably the feeling of community. Um, you know, when I moved to Indianapolis for grad school, there weren't a lot of Spartans, but there were a decent amount. I lived in Chicago briefly, too, where there are actually more um, people. But even people that I meet, um, you know, at my at the private practice I work at, Um, If you're wearing anything, you know, Michigan State related, it's like, yes, like go green. And then you're like, go white or like walking through an airport. And I don't know. Maybe I just don't pay attention because I don't care about other teams except for Michigan State. Uh, But I guess I don't. I don't see that with other teams, like just strangers, like, you know, or walking into a gym. I was wearing a Michigan State hat. I was like, go green. And I'm like, yeah. So. And you
1: can be anywhere. I mean, on my honeymoon, my wife and I are both Spartans. Mm-hmm. We went to the Coliseum in, in Rome.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: had a Michigan State shirt on. And we saw another guy with a state shirt. We're like, all right, go green, go white. It's like, it's such a universal thing. Yeah, I mean, you kind of nailed it. My wife always says what she misses most was, I have like 40 of my friends that all live within like two minutes. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like you never have that right. again. Like that's you're never going to get that unless you make friends with everybody in your nursing home in 60 <laughs> years. Like, like I have all my you know, best friends and I can walk to their house right mm-hmm. now in, in 10 minutes. So, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. So speaking of East Lansing and shenanigans. What was your take on this? I had and, and we mixed in a picture of two guys you know for for this graphic if you look over there uh, you'll, see, you'll you'll see Aw, uh, my favorite. Yeah, we make, we mixed them in Andrew and Brandon <laughs> there. I I have no idea who the girl is <laughs> but um, so sorry. Uh, but But hey Brandon.
0: Yeah, yeah, hey, hey Brandon.
1: <laughs> East Lansing house party versus I use Rick's as an example. It doesn't have to be Rick's, but I was always sure. more even when I was 21 of I don't mean house party with 10,000 strangers. I mean, like sure. 15, 20 people, I know most of them are they're one degree of separation away. I was more of a kind of a house party, chill guy. Mm-hmm. That I never went to the bars. I did. Where were you kind of in your Michigan State experience? Post-21, obviously. I know you would never use a fake or anything. No, but, never. Yeah,
0: um, I Rick's was like my my second home. I'm not even going to... So you're the bar. You're I, a bar. Yeah, yeah, so I'm not even going to deny that. It was like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sometimes Wednesday, because it was half off. Like... That was my home. (laughs)
1: Did your guys' bathroom stalls have doors? Because I know the men's didn't. The men's
0: did not. The women's did. Whether they worked properly or, like, were hanging off half the time, that's another story. But uh, I know that you guys
1: did Like, famously, I mean, look, if you're doing that kind of business at Rick's, uh, you're probably not having a good night. Like, you're either sick or have consumed enough to become sick. Sure. But, like, can we get a door on the stall on that bar? Like, <laughs> right. I, I mean, just, I feel bad for the people. I, I'm not going to be caught dead at Rick's again in my lifetime. I don't. I don't think. But um, <laughs> like, can we get a door for these poor right. guys? I feel. How do you not have a, a door on the I stall? Know. That's and gross. we had a
0: secret bathroom. We had like the main one. and We had a secret one with just one. You stall. You had a secret one. Yeah, with just like one stall. You could do you know your your own private business there. Oh, see, I didn't know about and the and then secret get all stall. sorts of compliments from other drunk girls like. He's a bitch. He ain't shit. You know, you look beautiful, girl. A lot you know, of that's, yeah. 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 Yes, we had. Wow.
1: <laughs> I the secret Rick's female bathroom, the women's bathroom <laughs> there. I never knew about this. I knew go, our, go our stalls did not, not you, have doors, but. <laughs> but yeah, I will not go in there. Yeah. Yeah, you might be talking to me advising me in prison in in 6 months if I go that route. So, moving on, you have some experience advising college students, right? I mean, that's something you've Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the, I've
0: worked in college counseling centers. College before. counseling yep.
1: centers. Can you tell me like a little bit about that? Like what kind of, what's like the biggest issue you see? Is it like my boyfriend was mean to me? I mean, is, am I being trivial? Like what, what's kind of the picture?
0: Um, I'd say anxiety and depression are the two biggest ones. Um, especially if people have moved away, they don't have a lot of friends. Um, that could be, you know, something that triggers a bit of depression, a lot of anxiety just because it's college. You know, if you're not planning going to college or, you know, you weren't some stellar student in high school, that stress of just being in academics. Um, I guess those were probably the biggest two things. And then, yeah. you know, a sprinkle here and there of, you know, relationships and friendships.
1: Homesickness being a component of the anxiety, like just being away from home.
0: Yeah. And not having the friends that you had at home. Yeah. You know, I'd and am gratefully I didn't have that issue. Most of my friends went to michigan state um
1: i don't know i mean i i love my family i love my friends that were from back home still friends with most of them i, w- I loved every second i was not like oh man i gotta get home every weekend but like I, my sister was like that i mean she wasn't going through anxiety and stuff but like every single weekend she was going home i'm like what are you doing she's oh, yeah. two years older than me like i mean have fun with mom like you know i, mean, I love you mom and dad uh, my mom's probably watching this right now but it's like Come on, you get a very small window to do this stuff. But yeah, I was just curious, kind of what the biggest. I, I would not have guessed that. I would have guessed more the relationship, like mm-hmm. my boyfriend's an asshole kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But because a lot of college boyfriends are assholes. Yeah. But, sure. uh, I yeah I, I, I buy the anxiety thing though. So I heard a rumor, that, and this is the next one that you're a fan of the Johnny Cash cover of Hurt. That I a uh,
0: huge fan. That that's <laughs> yes. like I, the,
1: we have a ton in common, obviously. But that's like. That's way up there. Mm-hmm. You have great taste in covers. I've argued the Johnny Cash cover of Hurt is the greatest cover in the history of music. And that there's a lot of people have mm-hmm. been covering. People have been covering Beethoven for 500 sure. years. I just, I mean, it was, is there any reason you like that song? Uh, is it, I mean, are you disputing that it's obviously the best cover ever? Like, kinda, oh, I just I've to never your,
0: dispute. I don't like the Nine Inch Nails. It's a lot better. He improved the, he the
1: Trent Reznor version. Yeah,
0: he absolutely did. But I think... um I don't know. I like it because I never going get sound cliche, but I think there's a huge uh, aspect of being open and vulnerable about, about your demons. And I think that's, that's a lot of what the song, at least for me um, kind of says.
1: And it was so perfect because obviously he didn't write it. He wrote many songs, but it was mm-hmm. a cover and, and Trent Reznor who wrote the song and originally performed it with nine inch nails was open and saying, look, he he did a better job than I did. Like, it took on a new meaning. He's like, that's his song. He consi- he wrote it and performed it years before. He considers it a Johnny Cash song, mm-hmm. which I mean, with the ultimate compliment. If you haven't seen the, and I'm sure you have, but the music video to that, it's like, if you know anything about Johnny Cash, especially, it's pretty sad. It's like horribly it, it, sad. It, it, it's, it's pretty sad. But I I have long argued for, since I came out in 03, best cover ever Mm -hmm. just i mean the combination of like this icon Mm -hmm. it was so personal even though he didn't write it like you really should have written it right it's 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 an all-timer so i I had to touch on that (laughs) so i have to talk about this this is this is our next one you had a really interesting piece of merchandise that i stumbled across on your social media organically i i was not stalking you I pulled it. I, I, it stood, stood out in my head before I asked you even
0: come on. This <laughs> my was, serial killer tumbler. Yeah, Becca's, <laughs>
1: serial, <laughs> Becca's serial killer tumbler, which I think, if you, if I recall, you got from Etsy. I, I did. Yeah, it yes. was an Etsy thing. Yep. We talked about it before the show. We love Etsy. Yeah,
0: it's sitting in my car right now. It's in your car. <laughs> yeah.
1: Man, I should have tipped you off. You could have brought it in. Mm-hmm. T- tell me, why does why is this a thing like why why do you why you, i say, i mean I love serial killers as much as anybody. I would feel like you go to like the library with Ted Bundy and blood splatters. I, I for the people that are just listening and not seeing it's a picture of the mug shots of serial killers with like
0: you can pick splatter. your you can pick your six I think favorite like so Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Eileen Warnos, um the b t k bind Torture kill, and then the um yeah, he was the clown. I can't remember his name. Oh,
1: uh, John Wayne Gacy. Yes. Yeah.
0: And then one more, and I can't remember. But I actually found it. So I found it on it on TikTok. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it was a girl who had it on Etsy. Um, uh, and just my fascination with these kinds of people, especially since they're so infamous. Um, and then the quote that it has from Ted Bundy, I thought was one of the most fascinating things that I had heard, and a quote I had never heard from him before. And it says, I don't feel guilt about anything. I feel sorry for those who feel guilt.
1: Yeah. Which is kind of him in a nutshell, right? Yeah. And that's sort of that criminal mindset to that degree. Because right. it, he like,
0: maintained his innocence until I think he was put to death, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They killed him. He maintained him. his yeah. innocence until then. He was super, he was the one, you know, super charming. They said some of that about Dahmer, but Ted, the Ted Bundy thing, it, he it's had like a, a fan club. Yeah. Well, they don't they all be Chris yeah. Watts with the aforementioned Chris Watts gets letters. I I, I cut that from the show because you have a life. I could have talked about that for 20 minutes. These women, that, yes. Charles Manson, the same thing. Can you give me and 10 it was, seconds?
0: It was he, he had a huge following. Creepy. It's Why creepy. Why, though? I, but not just him. Ed,
1: Manson, Chris yeah. Watts. Like, you know, this stuff. You're a woman. I, I like I don't get it. Like, what's the appeal? Is it like the is it a. Bad boy, like they like the bad boy
0: thing. What the fuck is that? I I, I wish I could even like oh, yeah, this give is why you any it to make insight. sense of this stuff. I just, I, it's I don't get so, that. It's so odd. You know, it's one thing, you know, liking the bad boy type with, you know, we got a motorcycle and some tattoos. And then another who's a serial killer. And well, and for Ted Bunny, a serial rapist too. And being a woman that, you know, is, like I said, a, a fan, I just, I can't. That doesn't resonate with me whatsoever. I don't understand it. And then Charles Manson, I, you know, because he, from my knowledge or memory, never actually killed someone. It was all his followers, right? Correct. Um, so I think that's even more bizarre. And it's not like he was an attractive male, nor was Jeffrey Dahmer.
1: No, I mean, yeah, dude perspective probably not. Ted Bundy was a decent looking guy,
0: right? And I think yep. that's that was a lot of his appeal, and that's a. A lot of how he got away with what he did for so long.
1: But can't you like be attracted and Form a fan club for a guy with a six pack, or right? A, a, <laughs> Not like someone cute dimples who, that like right. didn't axe a bunch of people. Yeah. I don't understand that, but yeah, I'm glad you're equally confused. I feel less bad about my confusion, right? If you, the clinical psychologist, has no idea what that's about because yeah. I mean, it, it's beyond like mild interest. They're sending like bikini photos and stuff. Oh, yeah, it's bizarre. People are nuts, but I, I want to be with you one time when you have the serial killer tumbler out in public. Like, <laughs> I, I, someone is I, maybe no one's approached you because people are socially awkward, but like, right. somebody's thinking like what's that about i, yeah. I want to jump into i don't bring, i notes.
0: don't bring it to work, so.
1: oh you don't okay so no. you don't you don't bring it in like interview the the michigan ted bundy like all right let's figure out your shit here's this ted bundy quote uh anyway yeah i, I found that tumblr so fascinating i would be i'd be so like nervous going out in public with that so let's get back to something a little lighter more important frankly back in east lansing both are out of commission forever they're gone tragically pokey sticks from gumby's or menace, any menace dub, pick your dub. Were you more of like, I mean, I'm sure you love both. We all did. Mm-hmm. But like you're drunk at 2.30, which you, know, you would never do. But let's say you were. You're drunk at 2.30, stumbling around East Lansing like we all have done. Are you like going to menas or pokey sticks, scumbies?
0: I'd say usually menas because it was just right by all the bars. It was just straight convenience and it was delicious. Who doesn't love being totally sober and getting that is right um that place was good sober i, I Oh, not it was get, how did it fantastic not work? because it had you know it had like the breakfast ones right yeah had like yeah yeah and like sausage doves and yeah
1: it was awesome i could it have was. eaten that all day like that like gummies not that they were you had to be drunk it wasn't like conrad's or something sorry right. some people love conrad's but like <laughs> come on it's not white castle but like to me i, I don't think i ever had gummies without like a beer, at least one beer involved for yeah. Meta's. It's like my wife and I, when we graduated, we'd come back and visit. It's like, hey, let's go to Meta's and we're like old people. Going yeah. to Metas. I don't know how it didn't work. But I,
0: I don't know either. What it was, was great. the dub
1: for you? I was a CT dub guy. Chicken tender uh,
0: I think that's what I was, too, if I remember correctly. I think so. Yeah.
1: Well, rest in peace to both those places. It's, uh-huh. it's heartbreaking. I mean, there's a lot of tragedies in the world. Mez and Gumby's going away in East Lansing is, like, right up there with some right. serious shit that's well, happening. And
0: when they changed it from, like, the Pokey Sticks because of... Poke Me I, Sticks because the Poke Me Sticks, I'm like... You couldn't come up with something better? Oh, I know. I
1: mean, with nice <laughs> circumvention. Yeah, that was because the, they didn't want to pay the franchise fee yeah, yeah. extension from the Gumby. But I'm franchise. like, can we
0: come up with a, a better name? Well, they, yeah, I
1: mean, <laughs> come on. At least give me a little bit more of a dodge there. Like, it's just, they were so shameless about it. But that was more just kind of funny because it was exactly the same. I yeah. could live with, they could call it anything they wanted. Yeah. It's like, I can still get that exactly. delicious garlic butter yeah. crust box. But, um, yeah, no more. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the effect it's had on my mental health that those two places are gone after. I'll hit you up for some free <laughs> treatments. So we'll wrap here. Last one. Back on topic a little bit. Putting you on the spot. Most bizarre thing an inmate has ever said to you or done to you, your most bizarre inmate interaction? Do you have one that really sticks out?
0: Uh, I don't know about bizarre. I've had some very crude interactions with like like coming
1: on to you crude. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, but we've I've seen inmates who are very very ill or just very just a behavioral problem. Their mental health is pretty much fine. They just want to act like dick. Um, so we've had you know feces smeared all around cells on themselves um, you know, urine being thrown at people, it, it, you can't make shit up.
1: (laughs) What's the, what's the like physical environment when you're doing these sessions? Are are they like behind glass or are they like sitting next to you where they could touch your knee or like? It
0: depends on the, their level. Um, so if they're the highest level, if they've committed something really bad or if their behavior warrants them to move up in the level, like the highest level is an eight At some places, it's a six at others. I don't what, depending on where you're at. Um, Then you are, you only speak with them um, outside of their, they're in their cell. You're standing outside. But people who are lower levels, anything but an eight, you can speak with them. You usually sit in the classroom, but the deputies are there, you know, monitoring you. There has to be a deputy there um, sitting at their desk monitoring you, Um, but.
1: I kind of yeah. envision you going down like a dank stone smoke filled hallway, like <laughs> Clarice Starling, and you know Hannibal Lecter at the end of the the road. that'd be
0: way cooler. Closer,
1: closer, <laughs> like you know, just easy, bring you know, bringing her in. And I, I, I'm gonna go with the Hollywood like dramatized version of everything ever. So yeah, that's who you're sitting with. But. Yeah. All right. Well, that was great. I mean, I hope I didn't keep you too long. I know we ran a little long. I could have done 10 hours with you because this is fascinating for me. And let's face it. I mean, you know, you're brilliant. (laughs) I don't don't overly flatter all the guests, but like you're really fascinating. You really got a good grip on this stuff. Obviously, this is your background. But um, you know, I'd love to have you back anytime if you're up for it. Maybe give you a couple months break (laughs) because I have a lot to take. But um, you did an awesome job. It was just fascinating.
0: Thank you. It's
1: great to have you. And, um, you know, it just is it's such a wide like anything crazy happens in Michigan in the criminal sack. Like I'm calling you like I'm keeping you on speed dial for that. Like (laughs) if if, if, God forbid there's like an axe murderer in Royal Oak or something like, (laughs) you know, I'm bringing you in. Even if you have to violate HIPAA because you're talking to him, I (laughs) I will force you to come in. But uh, no, it was great to have you. Honestly, great to just see you again. It's been a long time. And you know, under happier circumstances in some of our, you know, initial early interactions, right. certainly. So, right. um, and again, thank you to you. Thank you to the great and powerful Oz, the other side of the store. <laughs> yeah. You didn't see him. You didn't, you heard him though. Yeah. It's Ben Augusta who is really the force behind everything we do. He's the uh, expert in all aspects. I just kind of sit and talk to the person across from me. So Ben uh, Ben Augusta. Thank you to you, Eric Williamson, our set designer, graphic designer, he's the guy that fixes everything i break around here um at this hour 11 o'clock uh if you're watching this live he is definitely on his couch and his boxers watching this so thank you to eric thank you to the smuggler's son virgil's vineyard again for sponsoring the show and one last time thank you to a great spartan just like me (laughs) Becca (laughs) you thank you so much spiro avenue show justin spiro we'll be back soon uh if michigan state beats miami in miami this upcoming saturday I promise I will have a Michigan State football player currently on the team in the following week. That is going to be sort of pending what happens in that game. If not, maybe I'll give you guys a break from the Michigan State stuff. But it's been a little heavy. Becca kind of saved you from the fifth consecutive heavy <laughs> Michigan State show. i got to get a Wolverine in here at some point. But uh, <laughs> anyway, oh, oh, there's <laughs> half the, the wall. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've had a lot. You know, my be- best man at my wedding, best friend's a Wolverine. We've forgiven him for his sins long ago. <laughs> but um, anyway, so a lot, a lot of exciting stuff happening. I promise if Becca says yes. I will have her back. People were really excited about this. I, told I would you, love to. People That'd were pumped great. about this. But, <laughs> exactly. yeah, I mean, they're not always excited. They were really excited to see you. So, the Spear Avenue Show, Justin Spear. We'll see you soon. Thanks.